We are continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark uh, and the end of chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, please turn there and we'll pick up our study where we have been following along in this great gospel, looking at the life of Jesus. Um, one of the questions that I have said early on that we have to ask anytime we look at a passage in the Gospels is this question, who is Jesus? And that is front and center for us in this passage today. One of the deepest and most important questions of all questions that has plagued people for centuries has to do with this very question, who is Jesus? The identity of, of Jesus. And the question that runs through all of the Gospels and is asked in a variety of ways is this very question. We think of Jesus at his trial, and Pilate asks him this question, where do you come from at the end of his ministry? In John chapter 6, Jesus claims to be the bread that comes from heaven, but the Jews are perplexed, and they say, well, isn't he just the son of Joseph and Mary? People that we know, we know his family. How does he say that he comes from heaven? Mark chapter 6, the, the crowds are perplexed at Jesus' wisdom and authority as a teacher, and they ask themselves, well, isn't he simply a carpenter's son? We know his brothers and sisters. We know his family. We know, we know where he comes from. Where does this authority, where does this wisdom come from? Nathaniel asks a simple question. When he hears that Jesus is from Nazareth, he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? After being healed, a blind man is interrogated by religious authorities who declare, as for this man, Jesus, we do not know where he comes from. Even Jesus in Matthew 16 puts the question to his disciples and says, who do men say that I am? But then the even more important question, who do you say that I am? All through the Gospels, this question is asked again and again and again in a variety of ways. Who is this person and where does his power and authority come from? There is no more important question at the heart of each of the Gospels than this very question, who is Jesus? And what is the source of his power and authority? And that question sits at the very heart of the, the passage that we're going to look at today. Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 20. Then he went home, that is Jesus, and the crowd gathered again. And we've seen that again and again in Mark's gospel, haven't we? That when Jesus is any place, the crowds gather. Even when he goes home, there the crowds are, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and 
By the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has ridden, risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Hmm. Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have for us from this passage. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You notice as we read this passage that it's sort of built like a sandwich, isn't it? We have this scene at the beginning in verses 20 and 21 with Jesus and his family, and then beginning in 31 to 35, again, with his family. But then we have sandwiched in between there, the filling, as it were, 22 to 30, this scene with Jesus and the scribes, this very intense conversation. And there is a deep unifying question that, that brings this, these seemingly unrelated events together, and it is this question, as I said earlier, who is Jesus? And then, alongside that, what is my response to him? What is the people's response to him? This is the question that is being asked, strangely enough, by Jesus' own family and the scribes. But when you think about it, aren't there two groups of people who should have known Jesus better than any other group of people? Who should know Jesus better than the scribes and his own, and his own family? These are the two groups of people who should have recognized and accepted Jesus for who he truly was. Because who better knew the Old Testament scriptures than, than the scribes, these, these passages of scripture that would detail the coming of Messiah as the one who would heal and the one who would restore and the, the one who would redeem his people. 
these passages that describe his birth and his lineage and his, his life and his ministry, they were so clearly predicted in the, the Old Testament scriptures. And these scribes knew those passages backward and forward and inside and outside. They knew them well. And his own family, having been a part of that story, you think of, of Mary, his mother, having been visited by an angel and who understood so, so deeply how she was a part of this, this story. And even Joseph, who by now apparently is, is probably dead and not a part of the story anymore, but, but Joseph was a part of that as well. And all those events of his birth These are the people of all people who should have recognized who Jesus was. Yet what better description do we have of, of John 1, 11, He came into his own, but his own did not receive him. It's exactly what we see here with Jesus' family and the, and the scribes rejected by the ones who are best qualified to know him more deeply and more intimately than anybody. Because Jesus makes a point about his family at the end, we will look at that as a unit at the end. But first, let's look at this section 22 through 30 and this intense conversation with, with the scribes. The, the scribes are clear, clearly see that Je Jesus is demonstrating some kind of power, and that is, that is the very thing that is getting their attention. And they notice that it isn't just power, but it is spiritual power, that Jesus is demonstrating some kind of spiritual authority here. And the question that they simply cannot settle in themselves is, where does this authority come from? Where does this power come from? Because they can clearly see that Jesus has this kind of power and this kind of authority. But what is the nature of it? What's the source of it? They only knew that before them was somebody who was more than a man. They could not deny that he had authority, that he had even spiritual authority, and they realized that that authority had to come from one of two places. Either he was who he claimed to be, and that is the Son of God filled with, with the Spirit of God, whose works demonstrated the power of God, and whose words were the voice of God, or he was the very Son of Satan whose authority came from hell itself and whose works were the works of Satan and whose words were filled with the destruction of Satan. There was no third choice. It was one or the other. And they chose the latter. They made the second choice, not the first choice. He, he had to be, he had to be from the, he had to be working in, in the power of Satan and not in the power of God. And why would they make such a choice? 
but we have to think about who these people were. Why would they declare that Jesus is not filled with the Spirit of God, but with the, with the Spirit of, of Satan himself? It, it, it helps me to understand why Jesus, in these passages, as he is casting out demons, how often the demons would identify him and say, we know who you are. And Jesus would say to the demons, be silent. He doesn't want his identity declared to the world through the mouth of Satan. He wants the people to recognize instead the power of the Holy Spirit. Not to be identified by the spirit of darkness, but, but, but truly by the spirit of God. But also to declare that Jesus was the Son of God would mean for these people that they would have to, in some way, change their own lives. That they would have to give up their own system of rules and their system of power over these people. It would be admitting that they were wrong and Jesus is who he says he is. And they would have to reform their teachings, and they would have to submit to God's rule and to God's reign. But it would also mean for them to walk in freedom and truth and newness of life. It would mean walking in love and embracing the Jesus who threatened to overturn their well-developed kingdom and embrace life and health and beauty, the beauty of God's kingdom. I have met many people over the years who have been faced with that very question and to say, in order to take on life in Jesus' kingdom, life in God's kingdom, that means that I have to give up my own kingdom. I have to, I have to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. And for some people, that is a very, very difficult place to come. One of the saddest men I have ever met in my years of ministry, I often think about this, this man. Even though his kingdom was crashing, he was a very successful editor, very successful publisher with a major publishing house in the United States. And he recognized that his life was, was crashing around his feet. His marriage was gone. He had no relationship with his child. He'd lost his job. He was losing his money, everything. And as I unfolded the gospel to him, he simply said, I can't give this up for that. And I watched him self-destruct. And he literally drank himself to death. Basically died of alcohol poisoning because he simply couldn't give up this kingdom that he had held on to for years and let it go, though it was crumbling around him. The scribes realize that if we recognize who Jesus is, if we, if we take his claim for who he is, it means my kingdom must crumble and I must submit to his. The price was too great. 
And so they stood their ground and they rejected the kingdom of God to their own destruction. If the scribe's accusation that Jesus was casting out demons in the power of Satan, if if that accusation is correct, then it would not be a demonstration of Satan's power, but of Satan's self-destruction. Their accusation not only has no basis, it is utterly, utterly illogical. And that's exactly what Jesus says to them. Jesus responds to their charge, and I want you to notice something in verse 23. To this point, the scribes have been going to Jesus and making accusations, but notice something in verse 23 that changes. There is a shift in Jesus' ministry. He called them to him. He doesn't just wait for the charge to come to him. He actually calls the scribes to him. Here we find, as we have seen in chapter 3, a change in Jesus' ministry. He is not merely on the defensive. He is now on the offensive. He calls them to him and says, I have teaching for you. He calls them to him, and he, he responds to their charge in a series of very short parables. And these are very short parables. We're, we're used to parables being much longer, but each of these really is just a word picture. He says, a kingdom divided against itself, a house divided against itself, Satan rising up against himself. In each case, Jesus says, it can't stand. A nation in civil war only results in in chaos and destruction of its own people. A family where there is deep and abiding division can, can only end in estrangement and deep, deep woundedness. And even Satan at war with himself results in spiritual suicide. In each case, as Jesus lays that out, and we look at that and we, we see there can only be certain destruction. Nothing good can come from any of those, those situations. And we look at that and we think, yes, of course, there's a sense of logic in what Jesus is saying. But Jesus clearly says in the last of these parables that Satan's house is being overthrown. It is being overthrown not from the inside, but from the outside. It is not a case of civil war, as the the scribes are suggesting. It is a full-on attack from the leader of one kingdom who is overpowering another kingdom. Jesus is overpowering Satan, but not by the power of Satan, but but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice what he says. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And then, indeed, he may plunder his house. How does a robber come in and steal from a, from, from a person. Well, oftentimes, they will, they will bind up that person 
and then they will go through and ransack the house. That's exactly the picture that Jesus is giving here of, 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 a, of a burglar coming into a house, subduing the person who lives in the house so that they can go through and plunder the house. And that's, that's exactly what he's, what he's talking about here. And it makes sense. But it's not a case of somebody in the house. It's a case of somebody coming from the outside. And to understand fully Jesus' warning in verse 29, which we'll look at in just a minute, because this, this particular parable leads into that next section. To understand fully his, his warning in verse 29, we have to understand the source of Jesus' power and authority. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4, and we will see this very clearly. We find exactly the same thing in, in Matthew chapter 4. Where does Jesus' power and authority come from? We see actually in, in chapter 3, verse 22, that as Jesus is baptized, he, he comes out of the water, and the Holy Spirit, verse 22, descends on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice comes from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So we have this picture of the Trinity right there in, in this one verse. But notice Luke chapter 4, verse 1, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And he goes into this 40 days of, of, of testing. But then look down at verse 14, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all, and so on and so forth. Clearly, Jesus' power, as Luke is describing it, Matthew does exactly the same thing in Matthew chapter 4. Clearly, Jesus' power comes from this indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I hope as you, as you see that and as you think about that, you realize that same spirit that enabled Jesus as a man to minister, to heal, to, to teach with authority, to, to cast out demons, all these different things, every one of those is under the, the power and the authority of the, of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that indwells you and me that gives gifts and enables us to use those gifts, you and I actually minister in the same power and the same authority that Jesus did as he walked on earth. It's the same Holy Spirit, exactly the same way. So as we see that in Jesus' life, I hope you can realize, yes, that same power is available to me. We work in that same power. We work in that same authority. He enables us. He empowers us. He strengthens us. And so clearly, that's where Jesus' power and authority comes from, the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so Jesus responds to their accusation interestingly enough, with a promise and a warning. And I hope you see both in this passage that we want to look at here, verse 28. We see both a promise and a warning 
Notice how he begins, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. All sins will be forgiven. We've already seen in these passages that, that, that have preceded this that Jesus forgives sins. Your sins are forgiven. People come to him for healing, and sometimes the very first thing he says is, your sins are forgiven. Let me heal your soul. Let's, let's do the deeper work in your, in, your, in your heart, in your soul, and then we'll deal with the bodily things, the physical things. And so Jesus has already demonstrated, I have the, the authority to forgive sins. And he says, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. That is a tremendous word of hope. We, we so quickly run to the warning that's a part of this, and we'll look at that in a second, but, but he begins with a word of hope. Every sin that you and I have ever committed can be forgiven. Every single one, except the one which we'll look at. Over the years, I have talked with one person after another who lives with such guilt and such shame over some sin that they have forgiven, that, that they have committed. And they have wondered as they've sat in my office, can I be forgiven? I want to say to you that Jesus is so much more ready to forgive than we realize. No matter what you have done, no matter how desperate your life looks, no, there is no hole so deep that he cannot pull you out of it. There is no situation so bad that it cannot be redeemed by the power of God. There is no wound so deep that he cannot heal that wound Often the deeper problem I find is not so much finding forgiveness from God, it is learning to forgive ourselves. And so we project all of our own guilt and our, our shame onto God by refusing to forgive ourselves. Whenever I think of this, I so often go back to a conversation that I had with a with a young man a number of years ago as we sat across the table and I was explaining this very thing to him. And in the course of our, con we had many conversations, we, we still have conversations about this, and, and I was explaining to him the gospel yet again. I knew he'd heard it. And by the Spirit of God, I was led to say to him, you know, God can forgive anything. The Apostle Paul was a murderer, and God forgave him. And I, I will never forget his look. As he looked up across the table at me, and he said, did Paul kill his own child? And I said, Tell me about it. And this story came out that he probably hadn't told for years. And as he told me the story of how he helped with the killing of his own 
unborn child? I looked at him and I said, yes. God can forgive that. And I said, but can you forgive yourself? All sins can be forgiven. Jesus begins with that promise. He begins with a word of hope. All sins can be forgiven except one. What is this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, obviously it is connected with this very essence of Jesus' power and authority, which is so much a part of this story. It is, at its very essence, attributing the work of God to Satan. The scribes deliberately refused to acknowledge the activity of the Holy Spirit at work in Jesus' ministry. And this is the very nature of this sin. It identifies the work of God as the work of the devil. This accusation, he is possessed by demons, the prince of demons. How offensive. How offensive. Interestingly enough, Jesus says, you can even blaspheme against me, but when you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, you have gone too far. That is a point of no return. It is so fixed, it is so obstinate that it forms a permanent obstacle between man and God. But I hope you hear in these words of Jesus, these, this word of invitation to the scribes. Every sin can be forgiven, even yours. But they were so imprisoned by their religious respectability that they couldn't even see their own need. They, yet Jesus offers them this invitation. Even your sin can be forgiven. So we come to verse 31, and once again, Jesus' family is looking for him. No doubt in this culture, there are family obligations, there, there is family honor, there are family relationships that must be attended to. And apparently, whatever those obligations are, whatever those expectations are, Jesus was well aware of a much, much higher calling placed on him. And that is to be about the business of his heavenly father, even more than his earthly father. His statement is radical. It is, in fact, a redefinition of the family. What, is it, what does that mean for each of us? It isn't necessarily rejecting the connections of our, of our relations by heritage and blood, but it is putting those family relationships in their proper perspective 
under an even higher calling, and that is our identity as followers of Jesus. Jesus is completely redefining our relationships in the kingdom. He says, whoever does the will of God, he is my mother, my brother, my sister, and my mother. I love that he includes my sister. Because in this culture, women didn't have that much importance. But brothers and sisters, you see how Jesus is throwing open the gates of the kingdom to all people who are so marginalized in society. Welcome brothers and sisters. Women have a place in Jesus' kingdom that they never had in society at this time. Yes, brothers and sisters. I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of worshiping with believers in another culture. By God's grace, my wife and I have had many such opportunities over the years. There is something so wonderful and powerful and unique that happens when the when the people of God meet with one another around the table of the Lord. I love it. This one common profession that binds us and unites us as the children of God, and it is based solely on the finished work of Jesus at the cross. There is something about meeting with brothers and sisters in other cultures and when cultures come together, and we find that sense of unity together. And I can sit with people that I've never met before, and all of a sudden, I feel a connection and a relationship. As Proverbs says, there is a friend that is closer than a brother. And you feel that, you experience that, as you may not even share the same language, but we share the same family name. We are brothers and sisters with a common father, our heavenly father. That's what Jesus is saying here, that we are brothers and sisters together in the same family. It's beautiful when brothers and sisters who are true brothers and sisters by blood and by heritage also share that same fellowship under the authority of Jesus Christ. That's even doubly better. And and I am so blessed that I have two brothers who also share that same relationship with God that I do. And it deepens the richness of our fellowship. Not only because we share the same last name, but because we share the same spiritual heritage. How beautiful is that? And it is based solely on the finished work of Jesus at the cross. I love these words by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Great little book, Life Together, the classic exploration of faith in community. Read it if you have it. It's, it's a beautiful little book. He says, what determines our brotherhood is what man is by reason of Christ. Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. 
This is true not merely at the beginning as though in the course of time something else is going to be added to our community. No, it remains so for all of the future and on into eternity. Guess what? We are family for eternity. I have community with others and I shall continue to have it only through Jesus Christ. The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. We have one another only through Christ, but through Christ we do have one another wholly for all eternity. What we have to see here is the identity of Jesus Christ as the Son of God is clearly the thing that identifies us as the people of God. Who is a true disciple? That's our third question we always look at, isn't it? Who is a true disciple? The people who share his identity. How we answer this question, who is Jesus, has direct bearing on how I answer the question, who is Tom Kimber? I am Christ in me. That is my true identity. That is who I am. When we come to the table of the Lord... We are reminded of Jesus' words here in verse 28. All sins will be forgiven. The children of men. All sins will be forgiven. This is the ultimate confession of our faith right here. Jesus has brought something new into the world that transforms every one of our relationships. And God has found a way to break into the brokenness of our messy lives. And he has brought healing and wholeness to all of our relationships. Listen again to these words by Bonhoeffer. The day of the Lord's Supper is an occasion of joy for the Christian community. Reconciled in their hearts with God and the brethren. Notice that, reconciled with God and the brethren, each other. The congregation receives the gift of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And receiving that, it receives forgiveness new life, and salvation. It is given new fellowship with God and men. The fellowship of the Lord's Supper is the superlative fulfillment of Christian fellowship. As the members of the congregation are united in body and blood at the table of the Lord, so will they be together in eternity. Here the community has reached its goal. Here, joy in Christ and his community is complete. The life of Christians together under the word has, received, has reached its perfection. 
in this sacrament. We are going to celebrate who we are because of Jesus, individually and as a community, as we partake in these elements together. As we prepare for that, let me read these words. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is the table of the Lord. And it is, it is open to all who truly have trusted Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation. But we want to take seriously what Paul says here in these words, let a man examine himself so that we may partake rightly. So we want to do that for just a moment. Let's just have a, a couple of minutes of silence. And I would love for you in that time of silence to simply ask the Spirit of God, is there something that I need to ask forgiveness for? Examine yourself under his direction, and then we will partake together. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for those words of hope. In this world where we so often feel shame and guilt and condemnation, those words of Jesus are sweet to us. All sins can be forgiven. And that is what we celebrate. And in taking these elements, we recognize we must give up our kingdoms in submission to your kingdom. Help us to truly surrender all. All to Jesus we surrender. Help us. And as we celebrate, as we partake these elements, remind us again of who we are because of who Jesus is and because of what he has done. We thank you for doing for us what we never could have done for ourselves. Calling us into your family. And enjoying sweet fellowship with you for all eternity. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.